Flatiron School is an international boot camp for software engineering, data science, and design that changes lives through education. One of our strengths is our focus on teacher quality. Flatiron's educational development team has experts in both pedagogy and content knowledge who work with our teachers to ensure our students receive the best educational experiences possible. This is the podcast of the Educational Development Team. Hi, this is Sean. I'm the Director of Teacher Training here at Flatiron, and I am very privileged to have a special guest on my show tonight. I'll let him, tonight, (laughs) right now, (laughs) I'll let him introduce himself. You want to go ahead? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Ryan Gaida. I'm a Technical Coaching Fellow here at Dumbo Labs in Brooklyn. Thank you so much for this opportunity and having me on today. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So Ryan and I came to the idea of doing this interview because he talked to me about a workshop that he runs and we'll get there. But I think it's going to be helpful to just hear, Ryan, a little bit about your background, your personal story, what took you to Flatiron? Yeah, absolutely. I think a good and appropriate part to start with is my undergrad degree. I'm 25 years old, just for reference. So I graduated around 21, 22, like most people. I went to Rutgers University. I studied systems engineering. I also dabbled in some philosophy. So I took a few philosophy courses here and there. Upon graduation, I was really sort of skeptical about entering the workforce and the conventional nine to five role. And I was really introspective about the role I wanted to play, not only in my job, but in the world, in the career. And I didn't want to postpone the things that I wanted to do till I was like 30 or 40. I wanted to see how I could do that now consolidate my need for financial freedom, to develop experience, so on and so forth. So upon graduation, I actually took a gap year and I went straight to Adelaide, Australia. Why I went there, I actually just have an aunt and an uncle and some cousins that I don't really get to see often. So I figured, why not? Funny enough, I actually wasn't going there for a year originally. I was there just to go for a month or two, but I absolutely fell in love with Australia and their culture and their society there. And it really made me self-reflect about how different the fabric of society feels in America as opposed to some other countries in the world. And what I mean by that is there's an ambience of lax lax and, and, and calm in Australia that it's hard to really describe. A good way to put it is I feel like in America we live to work, but in Australia they work to live. And it's a very subtle difference, but it's palpable when you're there. People don't have this overbearing sense of stress and anxiety that you see a lot of people in impoverished areas in America carrying over their shoulders. So that really opened my eyes to like what life could be like, what society could be like, and also helped me reflect about the state of America and the state of other countries in the world. So while I was in Australia, I needed to support myself. So my uncle owns cafes. So I became a manager of one of his cafes, but also in conjunction, I became a personal trainer. We talked about earlier before we went live how my brother's a professional D1 wrestler. My other brother wrestles in high school. He's, I think, three in the shore. I myself am training to be an amateur fighter in Muay Thai. And so it's been in the family for close to a decade now. After I finished up in Australia, I was a personal trainer for about six months. It enabled me to gain insight into how to not only motivate people, but to change their default scripts, really, what they run in their minds. And it kind of tendency for people to fall into these negative feedback loops, specifically as it pertains to food, obviously, and life choices, because I was, that was my job was to help people, you know, lose weight, get healthier, get the bodies they want. But really what it was, was to give them a sense of peace and serenity in their minds and have the body reflect that serenity. 
I noticed early on that there were some personal trainers that avoided that concept altogether. They didn't really get into the, the mind aspect of it other than kind of like just push yourself when you're in a workout. But it's really the 23 hours outside the gym that dictate your results and whether or not this is going to be transformative for you or not. So I pulled from my experience from the philosophy, from psychology about why I felt like I needed to tackle that domain as well, namely the, the mental one, the mental schema. And I attribute all my success as a personal trainer to that. And a lot of the people that I trained told me that, that that was something that they didn't really get from other people. Fast forward, I finished Australia. My visa actually ran out. I had to come back home. There were some financial troubles at my house. My father's a GC, he's a general contractor, and I had no choice but to help him. He makes my family. So I had to invest about six months of time, kind of doing the things I learned in my degree, organization, how to structure something fixing the leaks, really just transparency and stuff. But it wasn't at all what I wanted to do. And I knew it was far removed from what I was really passionate about, which was people and helping people and overcoming inhibitions that we see in our lives. And that's really what I wanted. That opportunity presented itself to me rather unexpectedly, actually. So after about six months in construction, I met up with a friend that I went to college with. His name is Duncan, and he's actually a Flatiron alumni. Me and Duncan were both partners during our industrial engineering thesis. So the last semester of our college degree, we had a six-month project we built together. We presented it at an expo. It was awesome. We got like an A. Hadn't seen him in over a year. So we wanted to touch base and he came back. And I, I remember distinctly, I was in my basement and he comes in with like this gleaming smile. And he just looks exuberant. And I was like, oh, dude, you look great. What's happening? New girlfriend, what's going on? And he's like, no, dude, I, got, I just graduated from this school. And I remember him saying something to me and he's saying, dude, this place is what we wish school was like when we were in college. Because me and him, we used to talk a lot when we were at Rutgers as undergraduate. Like, what are all these filler classes we have to take? Why does this take four years? And you know, how, how education currently is it's monetized and they're not really as vested in student outcomes because they're so large scale. And we discussed these things. So he told me about the school and he said, it's everything we wish it was. Mm. And I know Duncan, I know he wouldn't say that lightly. So he sparked my interest. At this point, I still didn't know it was software engineering. And then he started telling me about the details of it. And I found it was software engineering. I was a little apprehensive because I secretly, unbeknownst to him, was always actually afraid of, <laughs> of programming and software. I was just like averse to it for whatever reason. I had a stigma against it. But he told me about the pre-work and how it was free and you could try it for three months. So I did. I was at a point in my life where I was introspecting myself and all my fears and coding was right up there as like one of the top three things I remember distinctly as being afraid of. So that was a catalyst for me to say, you know what, I'm going to try it. And I did. And there was a specific night, like I think a week or so into the pre-work where I solved the problem and I just like jumped out of my seat in excitement. Like there was a sense of fulfillment, you know, like there's these critical thinking neurons that hadn't fired in like six months were just like firing away. And I was using things that I studied from college and it was a beautiful experience. Fast forward, I got accepted into the program. I felt the program was amazing. And I knew immediately what Duncan meant after the first week. And what he meant was the collaboration, the creativity and the ambience that Flatiron facilitates is, is very unique. And it's very conducive for being able to learn such difficult abstract concepts in such a small time frame, namely 15 weeks. Nice. And to also get these people ready to go out and now get a job, get a fulfilling job at that, not just a job. I attribute largely to the social aspect that Flatiron does so uniquely well. 
That's great. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about your current role, what you do here? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So I got hired by May in uh, this past October as a technical coaching fellow, which is essentially kind of like a TA in the conventional university setting. Uh, what this means is we get assigned a class and we're there sitting down with the students when they get bugs, when they get errors, motivating them. Funny enough, I started realizing how, how much emotions and motivation and getting these kids out of the funk in their heads, how much of that was becoming a day-to-day activity for me, to my own delight, because I love that. And I, it, I felt just like I did when I was a personal trainer. I actually found myself utilizing a lot of the things I learned when I was a personal trainer and a coach. Granted, they weren't doing push-ups or squats or, or physical strenuous exercise, but they were being stressed and there was self-doubt. And that was the overlap that enabled me to leverage what I know because self-doubt and stress is exactly what someone who's dealing with obesity has. Self-doubt and stress is exactly someone who's dealing with self-confidence issues has. And one of the big things we do here at Flatiron is we introduce this concept of imposter syndrome, which is this phenomena of feeling like you don't belong. Like this is, you've been a sham and you kind of snuck in or got into the program, but no one really knows that you don't belong here. And that's a real phenomenon. And I, it's palpable. And you could feel it. With students. You could see it in their mannerisms, the way they carry themselves, the way they look at you, the way they progress through labs. So after I graduated my first class, I graduated my first class about two months ago. By the end of it, I was convinced um, we need some sort of mechanism, uh, a real mechanism or, or lecture to combat these issues that I saw as so prevalent. And those issues are stress, self-doubt, confidence, and really just like a fundamental understanding of how do we change ourselves for the better? How do we get on this path of Kaizen or constant improvement of just continually improving our state of mind, our our well-being, and our ability to deal with adversity? Because adversity is inevitable. Rather than it being something that inhibits us, how can we make it now something that acts as a catalyst for our own self-growth? And that fascinated me just as a metaphysical concept when I was an undergrad as I was studying philosophy. But here I am now working with it, seeing it in my hands. And I had this opportunity to really test what I think will work and gauge how it does work. Because I have a class of about 20, 25 students. So during my second class, I, I came up with this lecture called Anxiety Alchemist. And uh, I'll get into the name in a little bit. But basically, it was I had an hour and I wanted to pack it with as much utility and pragmatic advice that I could give students so that they could exercise to help them right now in the situation that they're in. Would you like me to go through the structure of that, of that lecture? Yeah. And this was sort of the genesis of this call um, mm-hmm. that Ryan and I got to talking about this thing that he did. And it lined up a lot with what I'm really interested in looking at in our student experience about the kind of stress and self-doubt that you talked about and stress as a real problem when it comes to learning, something that keeps you from reaching your potential. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would love it if you could just talk a little bit about what the workshop is, um, the structure of it, maybe some of the tips that you bring out in it. Sure, yeah. So I thought a little bit about a name for it. I wanted it to be catchy, of course. It didn't really matter what the name was, but I remember I was, I was reading something about alchemy at the time, and then anxiety was in my head, and the two kind of just stuck together. And I was like, oh, anxiety alchemist, that works. So I actually opened up the lecture talking about alchemy and about how alchemists were basically the scientists of today, but way back when, and how there was a time in our history as humans where we didn't have these definitive rules on how to solve and deconstruct a problem, you know, hypothesis, test, check, go back. That, that's, that wasn't with us forever. 
So you had alchemists who basically were kind of like magicians or wizards in their time where they would combine inert or non-desirable materials with the eventual goal of trying to create something of utility, namely gold. Like that, that was the, the philosopher's stone for alchemy back then. And the relevance I saw for that was the underlying mechanisms, the underpinnings of anxiety, of stress, that palpable, that, that heart rate pounding in your chest, the sweatiness. If you think about it, like when you go on a roller coaster, they're the same feelings. It's the same phenomenon. Your heart's pounding, you're sweating. But there's a subtle difference in when you're excited as opposed to when you're stressed. One, you feel like there's, there's a permanent, a, a impending imminent threat to you, whether that's real or not. That would be anxiety, right? And excitement was obviously not that. It's like, I'm there, but I know I'm not gonna. I'm strapped into the seat and having a good time. So the alchemy in what we're trying to do here at Flatiron is how can I take the underpinnings of anxiety and stress and now transmute that into something conducive and filled with utility, namely focus or self-empowerment or even just not stress, right? Just understanding it and labeling it as something that's more productive for us. Another thing I wanted to touch on was I was talking about how even worse than just feeling anxiety is the tendency for people that don't have the mental mechanisms to kind of dislodge themselves from that train of thought can end up falling into what we call like a negative feedback loop where initially the trigger that creates anxiety could be something like a test for giving or a lab that they're not able to do. And that would send them through the cycle of, okay, now I'm getting the physical symptoms of stress, right? I get clammy hands, my heart starts beating, I get that rock in my stomach which then leads back to the mental schema of, oh my God, I'm a failure. I'm not supposed to be here. Imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome. And kind of the whole, the whole human starts flashing red, whether it be mental and physical. The, bad, the, the real insidious thing about this is now, after that goes through one cycle, you know, a couple of seconds go by. Now the input to the system is no longer this initial trigger of the test. It's the stress itself. It's, oh, now I'm in a state of anxiety. And now I'm anxious because I'm anxious. And then that cycle happens. So then now you're anxious because you're anxious because you're anxious and thus now you're having an anxiety attack. We can't talk about education and facilitating growth for minds without having discussion about like what are the conditions that are conducive for learning. And we talked about this when we had our coffee chat with Jeff about how when the mind is filled with cortisol, it's like, yeah, forget about learning. That's not going to yeah. happen. You're stressed, buddy. You're not going to learn anything new. So as I started delving into this topic more and researching it, I realized that this is actually, that should be a prerequisite really. Understanding the basic mechanisms of how to control our emotions, how to get us to at least neutral, right? And if we don't have this innate ability, then we need to be able to learn it. So this is where this lecture came from. So after I introduced alchemy, I kind of draw a map, a schema of like what the, the anxiety loop looks like. And we just talked about it, where it starts in the trigger, it goes to the body, the mind starts saying things, you have this negative internal dialogue and it repeats. I then segue into talking about one of the biggest issues when it comes to dealing with anxiety. And that, from my experience empirically, was people either deal with the mental schema and the mental dialogue and disregard the physical symptoms or don't really address them, or vice versa, they'll talk about the physical symptoms, they'll administer like oh, a Xanax or do some meditation or do this, but they won't talk about the large scale philosophical fallacy. And then this turns into this two part section of the lecture where I talk about A, the failure fallacy, which is attributed to the mind and how to kind of see the irrationality of anxiety and especially the way that we administer it to ourselves and propagate it and allow it to be propagated in our minds. And the second part of the lecture is something that a person called Wim Hof 
pioneered, he actually called it the Wim Hof method. It's actually three things, but I only take one of them. Uh, his three things are cold exposure, meditation, and deep breathing. The part that I was able to take, obviously we can't make the kids take cold showers. <laughs> There's already, uh, meditation is kind of big in the mainstream, so a lot of people kind of know about it. So of the three, um, I think active deep breathing has the most immediate results and is the least exercised. Surprisingly enough, because it's just breathing and you would think that it's so simple that everyone would do it, but it's not. And I had personal experience with this. I've been doing his stuff for about a year. And I remember the first time I did his breathing exercise and it's not, it's not necessarily hard. I wouldn't say it's easy. Mm -hmm. It's just active breathing, but you do it intensely for about four or five minutes. And then there's a schema to it that I can get into later if you'd like. But I remember the first time I did it, it almost felt like if you've ever had the TV on in the back of your house or uh, like the hood on in the kitchen and you forget that it's on and then you turn it off. And now there's like this absence of something that you didn't even know was a thing. And now it's not there. And in its absence, you realize, oh my God, it's so quiet. Or, oh my God, it's so serene. And I had a very similar experience the first time I did this. So I chose to incorporate that as the second part of my lecture. I make the students pair up and they go through three sets of this deep breathing exercise. Um, I finish off with a video by Alan Watts, one of my favorite philosophers, and he goes into the mind and the nature of thinking. And just to end on something a little bit metaphysical for the students to kind of think about as they walk out of the class. And then I open up the floor to them to talk about how did you feel before? How did you feel after? I give the students usually like a whiteboard or a piece of paper, and I ask them to write down their state of mind in two to three sentences or come up with some metric, number one through 10, just some, some indication of like, what is your mental scape now? So we can compare what it's going to be after the exercise. I did that in my second class and the results were great. I had feedback from the lead instructors and the TCS from that class because it wasn't my class. And they said that during their feeling Fridays, which is basically our, our therapy for the students on Fridays where we all talk about how we feel every week. A lot of the students were saying like, this was, this was great. Um, God, I was doing this when I went home. I tried the cold shower. The cold shower was awesome. Or I looked at Alan Watson and stuff so interesting. So the feedback was awesome. And even the students came up to me afterwards, like, I want to learn more about this. Or this is something that I've been thinking about. Like, oh God, I'm so crazy. I can't control my thoughts. How do I get myself to stop thinking all these thoughts all the time? So it's something that people constantly deal with and think about. And I know that because I constantly deal with it. And I think about it. And we're all kind of more similar than we are different, especially when it comes to our adversity, the things that are ailments, the things that we deal with. So it was hugely popular. I did it a second time and refined it from the first time. And that went even better than the first. And it kind of just kept getting better and better as I did it. And now Ruth talks with some of the community leads here about making it something that we integrate into our curriculum for Mod 3 students. So Mod 3 is this kind of big shift in Flatiron because you're going from doing Rails and Ruby to JavaScript. JavaScript kind of has this aura of intimidation around it just because it's a language that the web is written with and it's kind of old, there's a lot of rules to it. It's a little all over the place. So we're thinking that administrating it during month three would be the best for students to deal with this kind of aura of intimidation that comes with month three. Yeah, so that's a quick, that's like a quick overview of how it's designed, why I have certain things where, given the time constraint of an hour, I really couldn't go through like a lot about everything. I kind of wanted to hit more about what could be pragmatic, what the students could actually exercise themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about something you said when you were talking about your path to Flatiron, you said that something that you tried to impress on your clients was that the time outside of the gym was actually more important 
mm-hmm. and more lasting than the time that they spent in it. Yes. And it feels like this is sort of an offshoot of that, that yeah. you're basically giving people the tools to cope on their own mm-hmm. rather than come to, say, Feelings Friday and get help. Right, right, right. Uh, and funny enough, the way to do that is to intrigue people and it's to make them curious. And the way I make them curious is I get to ask these kind of questions where I'll bring something to light. Like for instance, the issue with self-help, I'll say to them is like, the person that needs help is also the person that's administering the help. Hmm. Meaning you're trying to help yourself, but at the same time, you're the one with the issue. So you get this kind of self-referencing paradox. It's like this hand is trying to help this hand, but it can't touch this hand, or it's the one with the problem, sort of. So it gets like students to kind of like scratch their heads, like, yeah, how do we do that? Or I do this other thing, depending on what class I'm I'm giving the lecture to, I'll say like, all right, everyone, have you guys ever thought your own thoughts? And I'll get like this peculiar look in the class. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, what's the nature of a thought, right? Like we have these cognitions. Where do they come from? Are we in control of them? And I, I kind of interject this determinism versus free will dichotomy very early on in the lecture. So everyone's brains kind of starts picking at that. It's like beef jerky. They can't stop thinking about it. They're like, well, some thoughts, I guess I think, some thoughts kind of just happened. And then eventually what that does is it opens up their mind to ask more questions. It's like, it's kind of like, they're they're not receptive because it's like, hmm, we baited us with this. He must know an answer to it. Reality, the free will determinism thing has been a philosophical conundrum for like thousands of years, but it's just a, a segue for me to now allow them to be more curious and to ask questions. And it's important because like you look at like a monk or you look at someone in Western society versus someone like in Tibet who meditates all the time. It's like, what is the difference between the two of them? If we had to label it. And like I've come to the short conclusion of like, well, the Westerner is more reactive and the Tibetan monk has what one would say uh, distance between their thoughts and actions, meaning a thought can manifest, but the reaction isn't instantaneous. And if it is, it's not because of the emotional trigger from the thought. Whereas the Westerner or the conventional person who's never been brought up understanding meditation or the mind or all these metaphysical concepts will get something, some trigger, someone will say something to them and they'll snap back or they'll get mad or they'll, they'll say this stupid thing where like, well, I'm just having a bad day. The whole day is just bad. Yeah. How do you have a bad day? No, you had a bad thought which led to another one and you weren't able to break it. Now the whole day has been painted. Right? It's that cycle, the feedback loop that yeah, you're talking about. Exactly. It's that feedback loop that people don't have the correct answers to, really. And it's 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 a shame because it's such a it's not complicated. It doesn't require a master's or a bachelor's degree from university or a PhD or anything like that. It just requires some time alone with yourself and some guidance from people that have had experience, you know, these not even sages, but just people who understand the nature of this problem and it's it's curious because we all have this right we're all thinking creatures we're all sentient beings and we all have this sort of dichotomy between our ego and ourselves and we're trying to self-improve but there's this how do i say negative connotation to like self-help it's like oh people get stuck in the self-help you know loop where they're just constantly self-helping themselves but it's not getting better or they lean on it or something like that which is true to an extent i understand what they're saying but at the same time, when we're dealing with kids at access levels, we're coming from financially deprived areas or financially stressed areas, they actually end up coming in with some baggage because of that. So they actually would benefit more from even being introduced to the topic because they probably don't have access to it. They probably don't even hear these kinds of things. Adversity and stress and tension are probably part of their everyday life. Meditation is probably not talked about you know, through alleyway. It's probably a novel concept to them. So 
that was another reason why I feel like this kind of lecture is not only needed, but could benefit the students greatly, especially here at Access Labs. Yeah. Well, and, and giving those tools as you're trying to do is just so important because, right. you know, they'll be with us for 15 weeks and then they're going to go off into the real world and mm -hmm. get a job and they're going to deal with the same feelings. Yes. But now you're not going to be there to help them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I don't think I answered your question. I, I just recall what you were saying to me about how 23 out of the 24 hours, they're on their own, my clients, and likewise with the students. What I wanted to get at was I... The reason I introduce alchemy and all these metaphysical concepts about the ego and the mind and these high level stuff is to get students thinking and get students questioning this, questioning their existence per se, if you want to say it like that, or questioning their default modality in their minds. A lot of things that some students surprisingly actually already think about. I was actually surprised how many students look at me with wide eyes like, oh my God, yes, he's talking about this. I think about this all the time. Or I talk about this with my friends all the time. Yeah, what are thoughts? What is free will? How free are we? Is it just determinism? And we'll talk about like, well, is it just a big bang? And then now we're just all cogs in a machine. Like very cool, interesting philosophical discussions. And that's what sticks, right? That's what people start talking about even after the lecture. So even if they're not talking about anxiety, if they're just talking about the nature of thoughts after the lecture, that's a win for them because they're talking about that topic. They're talking about that domain. And the, the segue to that was this anxiety lecture. So inevitably be like, they're going to talk about that as well. Uh, likewise, with my clients in Australia, I got very close with them. I got very introspective with them. And it wasn't that I did like psychoanalysis or anything like that, but it was just very basic stuff. Like, you know, what are we? What are we made of? Why do we do what we do? Why do you have a problem with food? Tell me like what's going on in your mind before you reach for that donut. Tell me what's going on in your mind before you're having an anxiety test for the test. One of the things I learned from my third class during one of the feelings was um, one of the students was talking about like, he was on his repeat, so he had failed the module already. And he was on his second test for the second. So if he fails this one, he's going to be transferred to the online program. Mm -hmm. and he was expressing his, his kind of anxiety about this. So you could say that this was a quote-unquote worst-case scenario because if you fail this test, then you're out of the program in his mind. So this was like the ideal case study of like, this person is probably going to have the most anxiety, right? There's some stress coming. <laughs> There's some stress coming, right? I listened to what he said, and I'm not going to say his name, but... He was talking about how he said, I feel like I'm on the end of a rope and underneath me is like a tank full of sharks and above me, the rope is like splintering. Oh my God. And I listened to that and then I waited for my turn and I couldn't help but address. I said, it is so important the way we see our current predicament. And if you see your current predicament as someone suspended from a string that's about to snap above a shark tank, no thing, like nothing in this life is going to make you not stressed, right? It is, it's not only, it's not only unfair to you because it's not accurate. It's kind of like this subtle self-sabotage that we end up doing. And this is what's so sneaky about this topic is that mm -hmm. a lot of times the biggest input for stress is our own self-dialogue, what we think about ourselves, what we say about ourselves, right? We're in our own minds for the rest of our lives. And that relationship with the self is one that is extremely undervalued, especially in Western society. And it's not talked about often. You get kind of looked at kind of funny if you start talking about like the ego and the self and the mind and these metaphysical concepts. But I told the student, I said straight up, failing a test or not passing a code challenge is not synonymous with falling into charts. It's just not, yeah. it's not reality, right? The reality of the situation is you pushed yourself to a point where you got into a top tier program. 
Now you're at a fork in your road where either you're going to continue with the program in person or you're going to continue online with as much support as you would have gotten as the in-person. So really you're in a situation of good or good. And this should be something to be celebrated. And the biggest, most unfortunate thing is like oftentimes in life when we're in situations like that, where it's a good thing and a good thing, those are rare, right? Usually it's like mm-hmm. a rock in a hard place, like bad, bad. Here you are, good, good. But because of the self-dialogue and the mislabeling and the misunderstanding, it turns into a bad, bad. And inevitably, there's going to be more bad, bads that happen in life. So it's so rare. It's so important and misfortunate if the time where in life something good's happening, you're labeling it as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like we already have enough of that. That's already going to happen by itself accessibly, just by the nature of life and how hard it is and the struggle that we're going to have to face. So if you're not giving yourself the pat on the back when you earn it, when you deserve it, you're not going to get one. Right. And that's, that's another thing is uh, we don't have to get into like the self-love and the self-care thing, but that's an important part, right? It's, it's positive self-dialogue, not to the point of naivety, not saying like, Oh, I messed up. It's okay. I deserved it. And then continuing to do that. Another thing I tell students, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but one of the biggest things is not necessarily a journal, but a medium in which a person can record progress and learn lessons. Mm. So what I mean by that is, by and large, this is kind of like a war. It's a war between the two, your two selves, right? You can call them what they are. You have the self-defeating, self-deprecating self, the insecure, the imposter syndrome self, which is not something that needs to be abolished. It's not something that needs to be kind of put in a corner and isolated, but it's something that needs to be talked with. There needs to be a dialogue there because there's an there's a evolutionary necessity to have that kind of self-doubt. There's an evolutionary necessity to having that anxiety. Way back in the day, when we were just people walking through meadows, it was the person who thought there was a tiger, but there wasn't a tiger that survived, over the person who thought there wasn't a tiger, but there was. Which is why, <laughs> right? Which is why negative thoughts are sticky, positive thoughts are not, right? So when we start introducing logic and facts and you know, evolutionary psychology and biology, it makes a student feel less like "Whoa, is me? Why do I have this problem?" and more like "Whoa, I'm a human." We all have this problem. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a reason our brains are designed this way. And that yeah. that's uplifting. And when I talk about that in a lecture, I, I always get a few heads that kind of like, oh, I could see the, the weight get lifted off the shoulders. Like it's not some personal issue I have, or it's not because yeah. you know, I was traumatized by so on and so forth, and therefore I'm forever burdened with this. So yeah. there's a lot of dismantling of uh, incorrect mental characterizations of, of their lives and themselves and stuff. That's great. And it's such an important thing that you're doing for him. I love how you're bringing the neuroscience into this. Like this is not just yes. pop science, like you're washy. Right. And right. also just the, the way that you think about the students. Um, it's so compassionate, so empathic. I'm not surprised anymore when I see that in our teachers, because our teachers really, really care about the students. But what you're doing is so important. And it's just, it's really awesome to hear about this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder if we could finish. We only have a few minutes left before I get booted out of this conference room. Sure. But I wonder if we could finish with, do you have any things for a student who's considering Flatiron, anything that they should know? Hmm. Prepare to be challenged, right? This is, this is the biggest thing is prepare to be challenged, but also prepare for arguably one of the best experiences of your life. And I'm not saying that because I'm an alumni and I'm trying to sell the program. I'm saying that as someone who went through a great school, Rutgers is a great school, I went through a great program. Philosophy at Rutgers is number one globally. So it wasn't a, a decrease in quality, but it was really the emphasis on social collaboration, 
and creating a space where humans could be humans in the best way possible, how we were designed to be humans, which is collaboratively, right? Being in a positive workspace. One of my coworkers runs a unconscious bias talk. So you're here not only learning about programming, but also your own psychology, also the way your brain works, both for anxiety, like I'm talking about, but also the way we make assumptions about other people that we may not be aware of. So a lot of things that come with this program that aren't directly correlated to software engineering. Obviously, you're going to become a programmer. You're going to learn a lot about these languages, but prepare to learn a lot. That's that's the biggest thing. Prepare to have your eyes open. Prepare to be challenged and prepare to have your ability for time management to be. Uh, time management and organization, I would say, are, are very, very important concepts. So if you don't already have a journal of some sort where you write day-to-day objectives or day-to-day tasks, that's a good habit to start prior to getting into a boot camp, especially mm. at Flatiron, because... Nice. Having some sort of concrete medium that you could just jot down, okay, I said I was going to do X, Y, Z. I predicted it would take X amount of hours, but it actually ended up taking this much. Why was that? Or I made this hypothesis. It didn't work. Well, why? One of the things I tell my students is in their file hierarchy, in their, in their actual JavaScript, I make them create a journal.txt file. And what I say to them is if you're stuck, I want you to write in that file. And I want you to write, for instance, I have this current problem. My hypothesis to solving this problem is so on and so forth. And then write to yourself, even if it doesn't work, why it didn't work. So a lot of times what happens is I'll have students who are like, I've been working on this for three freaking hours and I made no progress. I'm like, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a lie. You're lying to yourself. You're saying something that's totally exaggerated. It's not that you didn't make progress. It's that you made hypothesis. You made a hypothesis and it didn't work. If we have a tangible log of why that didn't work, now we've created failure as opposed to being this thing that, oh, no, I failed. It's like, no, 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 you're, you're succeeding. You're on the path to getting the goal. This is how programming works. Yeah. Introducing that concept is probably one of the biggest ones. And that's what's covered in the failure fallacy in the lecture. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Ryan, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak about this. I mean, it's the stuff Thank that you, you're, Brad. oh, yeah, no, it's been wonderful. The stuff you're doing for the students is just, it's amazing. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Folks, thanks for tuning in. Take care. Do you enjoy this podcast? I'd love it if you'd leave a rating or review on iTunes or SoundCloud. And of course, please recommend it to your friends.